The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Stoneman's Book Group. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage. I hope you're doing okay wherever you may be and making the most of this strange time in our lives by reading as much as you can. I know I definitely am. Later on the show, I'm chatting with John Walter. He's the owner of local bookshop and show sponsor, Stoneman's Book Room. First up, it's usually time for an author retrospective, uh, where I usually play an interview with an author who's sadly no longer with us. Today, however, I'm going to replay an interview with an author who is very much alive and kicking. The author who's on top of the tree here in Australia, Tara June Winch, the winner a few weeks back of the 2020 Miles Franklin Award. Now, she visited Castlemaine back in December as part of Northern Books, their Books at the Brewery event here at the Tap Room. Perhaps you were there. It was a full house on the night. And here is that recording for you, Tara June Winch, in conversation with Kate Kennedy. Now, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about uh, the new book, The Yield, which is absolutely incredible. Um, It it tells the story of uh, a young woman called August Gondorindi, who's returned home to attend the funeral of her beloved grandfather, Albert Gondorindi, she knows as Poppy, in the Australian town of Massacre Plains, a town that is uh, mercifully fictional, but of course um, probably shouldn't be the name of several Australian towns. While August has exiled herself elsewhere after the traumatic disappearance of her sister in adolescence, Poppy has been quietly compiling a dictionary for our dream words, taking pen to paper, in his words, to pass on everything that was ever remembered. Now his story, told through the extracts in his transcribed voice, tells of dispossession, silencing, and so much more. Spirit, endurance, grace, and hope, perhaps more hope than we're entitled to. Um, and also Albert's visionary understanding of ancestry. Uh, the book is an incredible window into that world, and I am so delighted to be here talking to Tara Snowder. Can you just join me in? It's a welcome. Thank you. Now, Tara, back in 2006, something amazing happened to you. Um, your book, Swallow the Air, was published. It was your debut novel. Um, at the time, you were 22. You were the sole parent of a five-month-old daughter, and you were suddenly showered with huge acclaim. Um, I understand you were brought up in Wollongong, uh, and you're of um, oratory heritage yourself. Yes. Now, this book is, the illness, a lot of it is about the kind of um, regaining and remembering and transcribing of that language. So would you mind just um, talking to us about uh, how you came to be familiar with the language and what you've kind of discovered on your travels yeah. about that language. Can you hear me okay? Yes. So, um, thanks all for being here. It's my first time to Castle, Maine. So, Swallow the Air had won the David Unicorn Award in 2004, and between 
the award for an unpublished manuscript and publication, I'd been driving out to Western New South Wales to a sort of a country area much like Castlebone and the surrounds. Because I'd grown up on the coast and I was trying to rediscover my father's country where he was taken from his mother and was in a boy's home at three years old. And I know that that had to be, I had to explore that area and and, and know it intimately um, to have my character understand her journey going back to country, going back to her father's country and, and trying to find family, which she does in, in school again. Mm -hmm. So I was taking all these trips out to the countryside just camping and you know running your fingers through wheat fields and and, and touching granite stone stuff that I didn't experience at all growing up on the coast mm. and I just happened upon quite accidentally a language class that was in an old abandoned church run by Uncle Stan Brent Senior who's the father of the acclaimed journalist Stan Brent and uh, there was like three people in the class and I took the class and afterwards I wept in the car and it was so, it was such a moving and um, such a, he a healing experience to, to pick up a few words and to feel something that my father was completely disconnected from. And so I bought the big A a4 yellow dictionary that they had at the time and there must have been maybe only a hundred words there's six thousand that have been reclaimed now through um, the same great senior and the river was stronger which is incredible mm -hmm. and i took this and i used a few words in so there's probably six um rotary words and after the book come out like any writer or any musician you have that <coughs> regret self-hatred i think that it's not as you could have done more if only you've worked on it for another year or if only you changed that turn of phrase. And I had, I really held that regret for 10 years that I didn't illustrate how healing and how much of a balm that was to learn language for my character mm -hmm. and, and for myself through my character. Mm -hmm. And so I just, yeah, it took so yeah, it's almost so like your character in this book, though, is like 10 years older or 12 years older than your character in yeah, yeah, sort of the yeah, yeah. yeah. she's 15, isn't she? Yeah. This character's come back from an exile. It's that beautiful sort of classical shape of someone who's exiled themselves and is trying to return home. And in returning home is just discovering so much um, of what's going on in disposition yeah. and, you know, sports. The language is at the heart of it. Yeah. That's what I held on to for 10 years. Yeah. And during that 10 years, I had the mentorship <coughs> with um, Walesha Inka, the Nigerian Nobel laureate. And during that mentorship, it was more, it was really about discovering um, post-colonial writers and discovering how powerful um, language has been as a tool of warfare. There's this great quote by the Kenyan writer, um, Tiongo, who says, the bullet was the means of the physical subjugation and language was the means of the spiritual subjugation. And when I read those words, it, I knew I had to hold on to that idea of language and sort of run toward the horizon with that. And um, create a dictionary and a book which seems really bizarre 
Oh no, it works. <laughs> so it's not bizarre, it works incredibly well. In fact, I'm going to ask you to read um, a little bit so we can listen to Albert's voice if that's possible. Could you start with um, number one and then um, move to this next uh, section of beginning of chapter five? How do you listen to this beautiful voice? So it opens with Poppy Abigail who's been compiling this dictionary to pass on. He knows that um, his death is imminent and he wants to leave something behind as we all do. I was born on Nuremberg. Can you hear it? Nuremberg. If you say it right, it hits the back of your mouth and you should taste blood in your words. Every person around should learn the word for country in the old language, the first language, because that is the way to all time, to time travel. You can go all the way back. My daddy was Buddy Gondawindi and he died a young man by the hands of a bygone disease. My mother was Augustine and she died an old woman by the grip of, well, it was an old world disease too. Yet nothing ever really dies. Instead, it all goes beneath your feet, beside you, part of you. Look there, grass on the side of the road, tree bending in the wind, fish in the river, fish on your plate, fish feeding you. Nothing is ever gone. Soon, when I change, I won't be dead. I always memorise John 11:26. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Yet life rushed through and passed me as it will for each person. Before I believed everything they taught me, I thought when all were dead, they all were born. And so, as a young fellow, I tried to find my place in this short life. I only wanted to decide for myself how I'd live it, but that was a big ask in a country that had a plan for me, already mapped in my veins since before I was born. The one thing I thought I could control was my own head. It seemed the most sensible thing to do was to learn to read well. So in a country where we weren't really allowed to be, I decided to be, to get water from the stones, you see. After I met my beautiful wife, although beauty was the least of her, strong and fearless was the most of her. Well, she taught me lots of things. Big thing, the best thing she taught me was to learn to write the words too. Taught me I wasn't just a second-rate man raised on white flower and Christianity. It was my wife, Elsie, who bought me the first dictionary. I think she knew she was planting a seed, germinating something inside me when she did that. What a companion the dictionary is. There are stories in that book that will knock your boots off. To this day, it remains my prized possession, and I wouldn't trade it for all the tea in China. The dictionary from Elsie is why I'm writing it down. It was my introduction to the idea of recording, written just like the Reverend once wrote our births and baptisms at the mission, like the station manager wrote rations at the station, and just like the man the masters wrote our good behaviour at the boys' home. A list of words any fool could look up would be told the meaning. A dictionary, even if this language isn't mine alone, even if it's something we grow into and then living long enough shrink away from. 
I am writing because the spirits are urging me to remember and because the town needs to know that I remember. They need to know now more than ever before. To begin. But there are too many beginnings for us, Blonde Windy. That's what we will bestow and cursed with by the same shifty magic and eternal once upon a time. The story goes that the church brought time to us and the church, if you let it, will take it away. I'm writing about the other time though, deep time. This is a big, big story. The big stuff goes forever. Time ropes and loops and is never straight. That's a real story of time. The problem now facing my own once upon a time is that Dr. Shah from the High Street Surgery, surgery has recently given me a filthy bill of health. Cancer of the pancreas, which is me done and dusted. So because they say it is urgent, because I've got the church time against me, I'm taking pen to paper to pass on everything that was ever remembered. All the words I found on the wind. Yellow-tailed black cockatoo, Bilir. Bilir is rolled at the end. The most musical part of the word is the R-R. I can't think of any words in Australia like that, but if it was in Scotland, then I could. They don't speak with flat tongues there. Bilir is trilled, is a trilled sound. My mouth is dry, so I can't even hold it. Is a trilled sound, the tongue vibrating close to the teeth. The bird is a magnificent bird, strong, eagle-wise, black as a fire pit. The yellow feathers in the tail are visible in flight. I saw the bird all my life. All the Gondawindi love bird. From Prosperous Farm, my mummy was living in Tent Town, four miles downstream, where she birthed me there on the flat, warm sand below the core of bird. After Tent Town was flattened, and the mission turned into a station, and me and all the other kids were taken away. I remember walking out into the landing of the boys' home, standing under that sign that used to hang outside, think white, act white, be white. Looking for a light until I fit the bill 
That was the Lemonheads there with their track Outdoor Type. And now we'll return to Tara June Winch's appearance at Castlemaine's Tap Room, courtesy of Northern Books. This idea of um, yielding, I guess, and the different ways that you explore that and unpack that. Um, I was reading about um, what you mentioned before, how you were mentor. Um, it's because, and, and Tara's very modest, she, she was given a mentor before they received it because she received the International Rolex Mentor and Protege Arts Initiative Award, which is designed to assist extraordinary rising artists to achieve their full potential by pairing them with great masters. So yeah, pressure much. <laughs> um, and you heard that mentorship in 2008. Um, but in that time, you, you travelled a lot in the, in the years yeah. after that. And I was wondering if you would mind talking to us about that sense of um, legacy and the need to finish the first work, the work that you began to start with in the first book, because I understand your experience with a bit of general impoverishment in those years and just had to kind of make do and keep on going. Yeah, absolutely. And he actually, in 2008, 2009, when we worked together, this was two years, he predicted in 2009 during an interview, he said, if next year or 10 years from now a book comes out, it would be influenced by what we've talked about, not what we've worked on, but the, the talking. So it was really about, it wasn't, he didn't edit me on the line or anything like that, which you would want a Nobel Prize winner to do. He just sort of took me around villages and, and talked to me about life and tried to get me to see a big picture. And I guess made me realise what that I could never rush whatever I was going to bring out next. Mm-hmm. That it had to be a legacy and that I couldn't write to the sociological condition that I had to find the characters that would that were mine. And so that's why yeah, and it it, it did make it, it it did come into fruition because it was written for my father the book. Yes. But equally the people that were wanting our parents our grandparents and our children and I wanted to write that book that was could traverse those generations that it would equally be a gift to my father to rediscover this language and he has yes um, and he's using and he's gone back to country he's moved back to country and he's using these words now and it's and he's happy because he was so sort of broken from as he would be from growing up in a boy's home and, and being removed from family and so equally as a gift to my father, but something that I thought that my daughter could carry through her life. Mm. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. It does, because there's a beautiful thing in the book where um, Albert talks about uh, what he calls time travel, where he has these kind of hallucinatory, beautiful uh, walks with the spirits who talk to him. Yeah. And there was real to him when he's in the boys' home as anything else in reality. So it comes out of a trance state and he's receive new insight and he's learned new words and so there's that kind of sense that we do get to traverse and the things yeah. that are that you know we need to endure that we can you know and it moves between generations it's sort of funny it's sort of ironic maybe paradoxically ironic that you won the Rolex watch and uh, I understand you had to sell the Rolex watch yeah <laughs> But 
this is about a bigger time, isn't it? This is a bigger kind of legacy. This is about something which is to do with um, trying to rediscover something we've been dispossessed of and owning it again. So. And, and through that, I had to tell that time travel was necessary because um, I was trying to tell, I was trying to go too big and tell this you know, story of an entire country. And what we did keep saying, go small, go small, go small, and find those, find those characters that you're speaking to rather than that sociological condition, rather than the whole of the country. Trying to write to that, it's impossible. I think young writers do that, they become so ambitious, they want to put everything in a book. Mm-hmm. And so when I compacted um, the whole of the story into the metaphor of 500 acres of land on massive plains, I needed to um, tell, if I was going to tell the story of these people, the Wiradjuri people, the Gondolindi family in those 500 acres, then I knew I couldn't just tell one episode in history, but I had to tell all history, so all time existing on those 500 acres, and had to have them um, copy the time traveller and have him revisit the ancestors and then to show him the landscape and, and to almost become an initiated man through his life and for them to visit him at the boys' home and call him out to the river and the river would just appear and those things all had to had to had to be there, really fluid because the idea of dream time is that all time exists in sort of in the now, the past and the future exists in the now. And so writing about um, Writing about all time on the page, the only way I could do that was having that element of magical realism. Yes, yeah. And then having the granddaughter who inherited all that, which is August's um, third, third person chapters that yes. interweave almost like a river, or hopes like a river. And she's telling the contemporary action, what's happening now to that same 500 acres of land. And then of course, having those two family stories it was so necessary that I then have the uh, Reverend Brindley, who who built the mission on the same 500 acres square in the 1880s, and he's writing, and have, you know, his story is in church time, have cold, hard facts, have that um, reference back to dates sitting side by side against um, time travel and, and yeah, absolute magic. I thought it was really um, necessary. It was beautiful. And well, tell us about Reverend Brennan. He's someone who is a hopelessly compromised man. He has every good intention to try and help the natives, as it calls them, and to set up something which is going to be sustainable because he's watching terrible mistreatment of Australian Aboriginal people as he's, he's come to the country. And his own story is actually tragically ironic, isn't it? Would you mind talking a bit about that? I don't have to make it that way. Go tell us, yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't want to, I wanted to flip the villain on its head with um, the Reverend. Because when I did my research and looked at different mission and station managers or, or missionaries, there's such a sense of um, doing good. There was such an idealism attached to, to some of the diary entries. And I think that I wanted to sort of write to that Australian citizen still today that 
believe that the removal of children from families was for their own good because there are those people that exist in Australia in our, in our society and I sort of wanted them to sort of be lulled into his, um, his virtuosity and to then and then to hit them over the head really quite delicately but smack them around <laughs> over the head. So I needed to have him a Lutheran missionary. I needed him to be writing these letters to um, to an anthropologist friend to, to sort of to question everything that is done. A little bit like probably you've got these two male um, first person, one's writing a dictionary of life and his people's lives and the other is writing a, a serialised letter and I needed him to be Lutheran and writing the letter in 1915 mm -hmm. as then a persecuted, being persecuted for his mother tongue and reflecting on him not allowing the Wiradjuri people of the country to straddle those two cultures and, and you know really um, not allowing him to speak in mother tongue. So and he becomes interned himself yeah. because of World War One. So this incredibly carefully dovetailed story. It's not a spoiler, I don't think. It's not a spoiler, I Now, August, the young exiled woman who returns for Bobby's funeral and to try and just make peace, I suppose. This is even a widely word for making peace with yourself. Um, returns to Masculine Plains, she finds her really grandmother in the process, actually, of literally being evicted because speculators have found tin deposits under that 500 acres. And the impoverished town of Massacre Plains just can't wait to welcome in uh, a giant mining corporation because it will be jobs for all and money for all. Um, this latest dispossession, of course, comes after a long history of theft of land, of culture, and of children. And this grandmother character, is grief stricken and she's exhausted and she's sick to death of tokenism and she's ready to give up. Um, I was wondering if you could speak about that sense of fatigue, I suppose, and sorrow and loss and how that reality steers the story to something which actually ends up being incredibly uh, rich and hopeful. I just found it so beautifully constructed and skillful. How do you kind of reconcile all of those terrible realities and those elements that take over people's lives with how people find their feet and keep going. I think that was the flip side of the year because it's on that, with the title, it's on agricultural land and it refers a lot back to, um, it refers again and again to the, um, to the food and the nourishment that came from the land. And then the yield also, the giving in. Mm -hmm. And so I think the grandmother figure is, I think it's really easy to be, when you're isolated, to give in to a cause that you know that is right and, and virtuous. When you're without your family or without your um, tribe, without your people that are, that are moving towards the greater good, it's easy then to give in. To be, you know, lulled into the heat and to the oppression and to the, you know, she's an older woman. She's lived through. Um, she met um, Poppy, her husband, during the 1969 Charlie Perkins bus tour around mm -hmm. you know, the country. Yeah, right. Sorry, jet lag. That's all right. 
own country, New South Wales. And so she's, yeah, I think, oh, it's easy for her to give in because of her isolation and because of um, carrying so much, that, you know, that great inheritance, that great awful inheritance that she's had from her family. And so it isn't until, well, I don't want to give Ray the book, but yeah. she needs her family to return to fill straight again. It was wrong. That's with any family, any, any person. Um, actually, I might get you if you wouldn't mind just to read a couple more of these meetings because Albert does talk about that idea of yield. So if you wouldn't mind reading the yield one, and then um, if you wouldn't mind reading The amazing part about the dictionary is Albert's story gets told, um, not in kind of statement or declarative, you know, um, explanation, but it is kind of sideline descriptions that sort of come about incidentally because of what he's describing. So if you wouldn't mind just reading Neil and then a couple of other items that we'll talk about. Here? Yield, bend the feet, tread as in walking, also long, tall, banana. Yield itself is a funny word. Yield in English is a reaping, the thing that man can take from the land, the thing he's waited for and gets to claim, a wheat yield. In my language, it's the things you give to, the movement, the space between things. It's also the action made by Barony, because sorrow, old age, and pain bend and yield. The bodies of the ones that have passed were buried with every joint bent, even if the bones had to be broken. I think it was a bend in humiliation, just like we bend in our knees and bow our heads, bend, yield, banyana.
That was Richmond Fontaine there with their track Post to Wire. And now we'll return to 2020 Miles Franklin award-winning author Tara June Winch and her appearance at Castlemaine event Books at the Brewery. I just want to Sap of the trees, Gyalbu. The Gyalbu of the bloodwood trees saved some of the Dondamundi. When we were being gathered up to be taken away and taught the Bible and to be trained as labourers and domestic servants, my great aunties were frightened and ran, tried to hide their light-skinned babies in the bush. Some did get away and were never seen again, and some couldn't leave in time and disguise their babies as full blood by painting them dark with a gyalbu. Some of them were later captured, they wander around the river that appears when I travel with the ancestors. They are blood and sap-soaked, hiding in plain sight now, but still frightened. Say, speak, tell, yada. I asked Dr. Shah to yada. Tell me all the bad news. He obliged. No worries, I said to him when he offered the place at Broken Hospice. I'll be leaving the world the same way I came in, out by the river. He didn't much argue with me, just a few minutes. I think because he may have had to, but that fellow has loaned me a long time. So we settled it like men and shook hands and he let me go on my way. Elsie's been crying since we got back to Prosperous. So I took her beautiful face in my hand softly and I said, aren't you glad you met a fine bloke like me? She nodded, even if she was crying and laughing at the nerve of me. I would have died happy the day I met you else. And now we have all this other time together. Aren't we lucky? I said. And then we kissed and hugged and kissed and hugged. Until she came around to the fact that we're still alive now, still in each other's arms. When she was peaceful again, I came outside to finish my work. Scale the fish. The ancestors taught me all the things I wasn't taught at the boys' home. They taught me men's business. They taught me where to find food, the names and uses of all the plants and animals. My favourite was eating the freshwater eel and the Murrumpi cod. You can put the eel or fish whole, just as it is on the hot coals and break into the skin when it's done. You can put it on its side, you can scale and get it with a sharp knife first. You can take the back of the knife and scrape the scales toward the head and wash it and then leave the head or leave the head on completely. From under the tail to the top of the stomach, cut a log and then remove the insides, wash it again. The skin will just come away when it's cooked. If you eat the fish, it's important to know how to treat it after it's died for you. My nana, because I come from a family of fisher and fisher people and gardeners, vegetable gardeners, and she said, everyone knows how to scale a fish. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was smiling. You can't put that in. But I did. Some people don't. See, 
<laughs> Scars or marks, little holes left by smallpox. Galgum, galgum. Lots of the ancestors who visited me had this on their bodies. Not everyone, but plenty did. What's that? I said when I was little and hadn't yet learned not to ask someone about something different on their face or body. One of my great aunts said it was galgum, galgum. And then she drew a picture with the end of a stick from the fire. She drew it up in the sky above her talking and all the stars beholden to help her draw out her story. She told me sickness came in the wind, the shepherds in the wool of their sheep, and it was a cold time then. Every day and every night was chilly cold even with the sun out. Everyone was going through the shivers. They couldn't speak about it neither because their mouths were filled with blisters even though they hadn't eaten hot things straight from the fire. And then some of them couldn't see because the blisters flew in their eyes too, see? The smallpox were all over their feet and their hands and their face but not much everywhere else. So it was hard to walk or touch things or eat. Impossible to see. Well, everyone got sick then, and many people died, she said. Forever, I asked, and she said, never forever. But it was still not the right time to go for so many babies and nannies and poppies, the weak ones, the old people, old people with mouths filled still with things they needed to teach. It's sad, I said, and great auntie said, you tell, tell them I told you and then I'll never do things like that again. I asked her, who do I tell? And she said, just tell the truth and someone will hear it eventually. I guess this is what I'm doing finally. Tara, tell us about uh, your family and, and what their response has been to the year. Well, my daughter's almost 14, so she's not interested yet. <laughs> and I don't know, we're kind of, we're like, not, we're like blue collar, working class housing commission. No one's graduated university. So if you do something like write a book, yeah, yeah, stop bragging. <laughs> but, um, and dad's like that, but I know that his girlfriend is a reader, he's got this new girlfriend that he met by the river in, on Nuremberg recently. Yeah. And she's a reader, which is incredible. <laughs> and she, yeah, she has got the audio book and plays it, he plays it and listens to it. And he wouldn't tell me, you know, I'm proud of you, that's not how we do it. No. <laughs> but he's been reading words and learning he says, gaja, gaja means, like, get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> That's his favorite word. So, <laughs> that means a lot. <laughs> That's expression, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and what's, what's the future for you now? What, what are you turning your thoughts <coughs> I, I feel like this is a huge love letter to my family and my country. It really is because I don't feel like um, 
I feel like it's very hopeful. We've, I've read heaps of sad stuff, but I feel like there's, I wanted it to be hopeful. I didn't want it to be didactic. Um, and it's, and it, I feel like it needs its own time. And so I, I love writing about Australia for a few years. The next book's set in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you living in France at the moment? Yeah. So you're just taking your inspiration from Jack all around you at the moment. And it was super hard to write these things. I was writing in English and Wiradjuri and learning Wiradjuri mm-hmm. and also trying to write in my best English. It's not like you're fluent in a, you sure. know a language, fluent in English, but to write in it, to find that perfect word, you've got to be in it completely. Yeah. And so I had to really push out French from around me. And really talk to people in the street and then out of home mostly turned to <coughs> But then um but writing most of it, like a good half of it from France was was hard in many ways, but in this in the same way whatever's whatever I drew from was really limited. I couldn't go outside my house and 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 hear the bird song or smell the eucalypt or touch the train or whatever it was. And so what you, what I drew on from memory was so, um, was the stuff that really burned you. So it became, I think, um, I only drew on the most poignant, most burning sort of imagery of what Australia was. And then when I was really stuck, I worked on, there's these amateur, there's probably some in the room, there's these amateur bird watchers who put on four, five hour long videos on YouTube. <laughs> and it's just a camera and then if you're lucky, a bird comes in the frame. <laughs> so you made kind of a YouTube experiential landscape for yourself. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just listened to it because you can hear that. And even, maybe it took a few months to come up with um, five words that were like the book that sound of the bush and I can't even remember them so gently. but it was um I do and maybe it's not even I don't know maybe you as a writer cicada friction yes. and bird whip and no that took months that's yeah. why it took so long with the language in the book I have to say before we finish up I absolutely love this um it was like a feast to fall into. For me, it was like this most beautiful. It's about being immersive and trying to create language that puts yourself back in your place first. There's that extra bonus gift of you put someone else in that place as well. Where that kind of that world. It isn't just about language either. It's about that visual world that you create. Um, that is just so beautiful. I really feel like this is. The thing, if you're worried about what to get for a Christmas present, <laughs> and she's here in the room, my goodness, you can sign it. In fact, instead of requesting an answer tonight, Tara and I were saying it's going to be great if instead of that, come up and have a yarn. Yeah. Come up and have a talk. Um, get a book and have a leisurely time having a chat. Uh, but just before we do finish up, um, I hope you don't mind me constantly asking Tara to read aloud from this, but I really want to give you this feeling of this. Um, and I just was glancing through the book again today, and I have to say, I had a little bit, I felt a bit tearful. Uh, because the end of the book, 
Um, coming out of where we are at the moment in this country where we are on fire, we have no leadership, we are leaving a legacy which is just incredibly disempowering, um, all of those things. It was a beautiful experience to um, listen to the voice of Albert. Um, just, it felt a very soothing thing and I felt his presence and I was wondering if you would just read for us to finish up um, the last page, the, the last section of the book. Artist, but because he's going backwards, mm -hmm. English words are first. He doesn't have a Z, there's not a Z word in his alphabet, and so it starts with Y, and the English words go all the way back, so that's why there's artist at the end. But then there's an appendix dictionary where um, Wiradjuri words are first, so it's Wiradjuri, then English, to sort of honor that. And we keep we break it to put it together. Artist, Bandanyami. What a wonderful thing to make something. I saw a painting in a book. It's called Dialgus Street. Is that right? Oh. <laughs> it's not an Aboriginal It's called, someone can correct me afterwards. It's D L U G A. No? Okay. Dialgus Street. It was painted by a Bananyani called Bernardo Bellotto. He was an Italian fella. He painted the city of Warsaw, Poland. There were 26 of them in a star called the Duke. He made those paintings, detailed lives of the people and the city, and he passed away just a handful of years before Australia was invaded. <coughs> Almost 200 years later, the Nazis bombed Warsaw, killing hundreds and thousands of people. Horrible annihilation. In this dark time, almost the entire city of Warsaw was burned and destroyed. The people left were thinking about moving the city somewhere else, rebuilding a new Warsaw. But then they had all these paintings of the city these great detailed things by the artist Bernardo Bellotto. And they rebuilt the city from the paintings done generations before it was bombed to bits. I want the younger ones, the next little ones, to read this book and for them to look into the riverbed, to stare up to the tops of the guns, to look and know and name the birds to recognise that city that no one seems to see anymore. I wouldn't be invisible anymore. None of us would be. For the finest local and Victorian regional wine, look no further than Castlemaine Central Wine Store. They've got locally produced ciders, craft beer, plus a great range of everyday drinking wines at affordable prices. And they even sell gift vouchers. Castlemaine Central Wine Store, Littleton Street, Castlemaine. Monday to Saturday from 10.30am. A proud sponsor of 94.9 Main FM. Harcourt Valley Vineyards is now bringing their award-winning wines, ginger beer and raspberry mead to your door, offering free delivery in central Victoria and Melbourne. 
Their lockdown wine box special includes a combination of Riesling, Grenache Rosé, Barb Shiraz, Cab Sav and Mount Camel Shiraz. Check out their Facebook page or Instagram for details or visit harcourtvalley.com.au. Harcourt Valley Vineyards is a full-bodied sponsor of Main FM. Knocked on your door. A quick disclaimer, the following interview was completed a week ago and the landscape in terms of coronavirus has changed a little bit since then. And now in the line, we have John Walter, owner and proprietor down at our sponsor, Stoneman's Bookroom. John, how are you doing today? Yeah, really well, thank you. Um, it's a pretty gorgeous day, so um, <laughs> I haven't gone into work yet. All oh, right. But, uh, yeah. That's... But, uh, I'll be there shortly. There's lots happening at work at present because um, we're, 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 Castle Maine at this moment is uh, fairly... Corona clear, I think. Yes, and um, and we're adjusting. I mean, it's just a matter of we've got the the laminate screens up around the counter. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're watching how many people come in, but you know, this this town we're we're pretty um, pretty sensible, I think. And yes. um, we business took a big hit a couple of weeks ago when the um, urban tourists were were banned from leaving Melbourne. They um, that's, that's, that's right. A big part of our our business, particularly the weekend. But, um, that's right. So now your customers uh, are really just Castle Main and and surrounding areas, wouldn't they be? Yeah, yeah. Mm. We're getting, getting a lot of people from uh, um, oh, and Woodend. Right. We always do well out of Bendigo. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's so close, and uh, Castle Main does offer a lot of. You know, we, we don't have any of the generics, which is great. As far as I'm concerned, yeah, it might, might differ, but I, it's, it's much easier. Every time one of the huge generic variety shops open, you you lose you know half a dozen small traders. So yep. I'm happy to be in the small trader category. Oh, um, indeed, indeed. Yeah. Can I ask you a bit more about Corona? How big an effect has it had on on the book trade? Well, initially it was horrendous because we were shut for several weeks. It's um, when when you run a business like Stoneman's Book Room, you're always relying on credit from the suppliers. Right. Um, so, you know, you, you, you take a hundred dollars, and eighty of that has to go to the suppliers. Now, when you close for several weeks, um, you're you're suddenly what was owed for sixty days became ninety days or one hundred and twenty. So, it really made things a bit tricky for a while because the banks are. They're not into loaning new money. They're extending debt. But with Corona, I think most most of the business world has taken you know different different hits. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, the worst hits been the the food, um, yeah. particularly the sit down, um, and the book industry as a whole. Um, I think we've we've fared reasonably well because it's been an activity that uh, has been. Uh, it's been available mm-hmm. for everyone to do without risking their health or anyone else's. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We're, yeah we're, I, I can't complain to be honest. It's, That's good. Uh, it's been tricky for some of the staff because they're health compromised. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you know, I, I think it's it's foreign ground, Paul. So no one knows. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I see you've been yeah. quite innovative. You've um, offered home delivery service. For yeah, the first time. yeah. That was yeah. Uh, that was, was okay for. Um, 
when we were first closed and that, but it's it's so interesting that people love to be able to um, you know, come in and, and yeah. say hello. I think it's, you know, that a lot of us have gone a little bit uh, stir-crazy without the human contact that, yeah, you yeah. know, going up the street does. Um, it's, it's really interesting. I was walking around the street yesterday and Casamone's wearing a lot of masks, which is great, even yeah. though we don't have to, we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I think... Um, yeah, I, I, I think long term, there's going to be a lot of pain in the way we live. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about that in terms of the... Yeah, go ahead. No, you go. I, I was going to ask you that in terms of the book trade. Can you see it going back to normal or will it be a, a new normal that we, we uh, head to? I think the new normal will be the social distancing mm-hmm. um, because... And also the hygiene, I think... Uh, Mm. If, if we know that that can protect us from our loved ones, we're going to be so much more conscious of of how we, you know, um, treat our hygiene and yeah. and those and the spaces between us. So I think there, there will be a new normal, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So, um, what have you got coming up in the shop? Any any new releases? Uh, oh, look, it's, it's a lot of fun at the moment because I haven't worked up on my own. I've had a lot of health issues over the years, so right. I haven't really spent any large amounts of time at the shop. And, and the fact that I am now, um, I'm uncovering lots and lots of old boxes of books. Out. In the early days in the shop, I used to buy pallets of uh, reminded yes. stuff and leave on the footpath and... <laughs> Pack them up and stack them away. We and used to. Uh, I'm we used to have things that I've forgotten about. So <laughs> that's that's a bit of fun. We used and, to have uh, Susan Green um, on the on the show, author and obviously what bookseller. A yeah. Yes, and she always, you know, she she mentioned to me a few times about John's boxes of books. These infamous boxes of books that that yeah that you have there. Are, are you going to be uh, opening them up? Are they going to be for sale? Yeah, no, they're coming out some of those boxes that it's. Uh, I mean, there's some absolute rubbish and there's some absolute yeah, right, things. So, um, and also this week we've managed to, um, the new Cape Grenville, we've got abundant stock now. Right. Phosphorescence, these are the books that had sold out. Um, and I also see. the um, Miles Franklin winner, um, mm-hmm. Yield. Yeah. So we've got uh, people can... <laughs> what, what had happened is when, when the Miles Franklin winner is uh, announced, um, like Yield has been out for a year and we, yeah. we had half a dozen copies but you don't know who's going to win the prize so you don't have abundant stock so yeah. it's that shortfall from the announcement and uh, right, yeah, yeah. When, when the stock hits so yeah that's all there now so yeah. we're pretty happy about that this, look it's, a, it's an interesting time there's a new book not hierarchy but when I first, well, I first started in books mm-hmm. 40 years ago, I did a cadetship with Myers. Right. And then I worked in a rep for Hodder and Stoughton um, yep. in WA. But I was out of books for 20 odd years, and then I've, I'm back in. I've had this shop for 15 years. But mm-hmm. there is a. Once upon a time, there'd be maybe six big books a year. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a blockbuster authors, whereas now there's. Probably four or five good books every month wow. uh, from yeah. really well-proven and, and interesting authors. So, yeah, um, yeah there's a, the book business is, you know, we're noticing a huge growth in kids' books because yeah. of that, that uh, Mario, you know, the Game Boy generation. Yes. They, 
they never learned to read. Right. And, uh, and then they, their kids haven't read. And now um, there's a bit of a wake-up call happening there. You know, you do better in life if you can read. Of I course. That. And so you, um, you can... Uh, it, I shouldn't say it like that, but it, 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 it's an advantage that uh, you you know what's happening. Yes, uh, definitely. Still, still the best way for me to get into. Well, not the best way, but it is. Yeah, I've got but I've got I'm two young kids, and uh, I think just the best gift you can give a child is is the gift to read. And uh, kids' books are so much fun as well. Even even I, I read them, you know, to my young ones. And it's are, just there's so yeah. many great titles and great authors out there, especially at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And Matilda's still one of the greatest books ever. Oh, it is, isn't it? I read that recently as well. Yeah, Roald Dahl, still, still. He's been dead, what, 30 years, and he, you still can't beat him. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting now with uh, David Williams out of yes. uh, Little Britain. Yes. He's getting a stable of books bigger than Roald Dahl. Uh, I know, he's getting better known so for that. Yeah, than his comedy, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's incredible. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Well, I'm glad you guys are, are ticking along. John, it would be fantastic to check in with you next month as well, if that was right. okay with you. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. That's no, been good. Thanks so much. Brilliant. Well, uh, best of luck there with Corona, and we'll, we'll check in with you again soon. Right. Thank Thanks you very much, so John. Much. No agenda. Music, interviews, mostly music. Saturdays, noon until 2pm on 94.9 Main FM. Make it your soundtrack for Saturday. And that is all we have time for this week on The Quiet Carriage. A big thank you to my guest there, John Walter at Stowman's Bookroom, and to Northern Books for allowing me to play that interview with Mars Franklin Award winner Tara June Winch. I'm on Fridays from 1pm on 94.9 Main FM and mainfm.net. You can listen to all previous episodes on Spotify and you can find me across all social media. Until next time, keep reading. Hi, I'm Marie Edwards, your State Member of Parliament for Bendigo West. Castlemaine and District, including Campbell's Creek, Newstead, Malden, Tewton and Harcourt are important parts of my electorate. If you have any questions or anything you wish to discuss that concerns the State Government, I'm here to help. Please phone 5410 for an appointment. Spoken and authorised by M. Edwards, 16 Lockwood Road, Kangaroo Flat, funded from Parliamentary Budget. Marie Edwards, supporting Main FM.